Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 469 for November 15th, 2015. This week, we'll take a look at the latest iteration of On One's set of tools for photographers and examine how they can improve photographs of people. Following up from last week's recommendations for secure browsing, I'll describe the process I use to stay safe on the web. In short circuits, how to enable the built-in administrator account in Windows, and although Microsoft is reducing online storage for Office 365 users, it's still pretty substantial. In spare parts, only on the website, a new Microsoft data center will open soon for users in Europe, and Fujitsu examines the future of computing over the next five to ten years. No matter how well you compose and expose an image in your camera, it can always be improved. When cameras contained film, the process was complex. Either you had to have your own darkroom and know how to adjust the processing, or you needed to send detailed instructions to a professional lab. Today it's considerably different because you no longer need a darkroom or a professional lab. Applications such as Lightroom make the process relatively easy to learn, and some of the applications that used to be offered as plugins for Lightroom and Photoshop can now be used as standalone applications. The photo I picked for the exercise this week is from Dollar Photo Club, that's a division of Photolia. Adobe has acquired Photolia, and no new subscribers are being accepted by the Dollar Photo Club. Adobe will probably terminate the service eventually, but currently it's still a source of good, very economical images. The image was created by Dmitry Berkut in Russia. I decided to use it as I explored the On One Photo 10 portrait function. Although On One Photo 10 can be used as an Adobe Photoshop Lightroom or Photoshop Elements plugin, I decided to use it in standalone mode for this test. Check out the images on the TechBiter Worldwide website. When you open an image in portrait mode, On One Photo 10 draws a rectangle around all the faces it finds. If there's more than one face, you'll need to repeat the selection process for each face you want to work on. Just click anywhere within a white rectangle around a face, it'll become green, indicating that this is the face you're going to be working with. The program will prompt you to set markers on four spots the center of the left eye, the center of the right eye, the left corner of the mouth, and the right corner of the mouth. You can't skip any of them. Next, On One Photo 10 will outline the eyes and the mouth. The application will do its best, but you'll probably need to fine-tune the selections. For the photo I was using, the application got the mouth exactly right. It was a little bit off base on the eyes, though. Making and refining these selections enables the program to lighten the whites of the eyes, enhance details of the iris, and whiten the subject's teeth if they are visible. Controls on the right side of the screen allow you to adjust how much each of the areas is modified. Next, you'll adjust On One Photo 10 to reduce blemishes, increase skin smoothing, reduce shine, and adjust shadows and evenness. 
A word of caution here, though, it's easy to go too far. A man or a woman who has lived for six, seven, or eight decades or more will have some wrinkles. Model Lauren Hutton put it this way, Our wrinkles are our medals of the passage of life. They are what we have been through and who we want to be. So don't try to make the wrinkles disappear. You can reduce them, though, soften them. Take a look at the before and after images on the TechBiter Worldwide website, and you can stop right there if you want to, but you might also want to investigate some of the effects that can be applied to the image. The Presets and Filters tabs make it possible to add some finishing touches. I selected one of the presets called Portrait Color Boost, and it made some subtle enhancements to the image. Then after saving that version of the image, I selected Filters and added a border, a blue border. I thought it worked well because it picked up the blue color in the woman's sweater. So the bottom line is five cats. Portrait work is just the beginning for On One Photo 10. Although the portrait-based functions in Photo 10 are impressive, they're only part of the story. There's also a section of the application that allows you to correct exposure and contrast or add a high dynamic range look to an image, and another section that offers a range of presets and filters. You can download a trial version from the website, upgrade from a previous version for $90, or buy the current version of the application for $110. Check it out on the On One website. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Last week, I quoted a recommendation by the Cyber Threat Alliance. Here's what they said. Keep web browsers updated and enable settings that disable browser plugins such as Java, Flash, and Silverlight to prevent them from running malware automatically. That prompted a response from a reader. Can you inform me how to accomplish this? Well, let me start with a disclaimer. Completely disabling these plugins will make the browser safer, but it will also make the browser less functional. It's the old battle between security and usability. Because HTML5 doesn't yet offer a straightforward way to play audio files, I continue to use a Flash player. Disable Flash, and listening to the podcast will be a little more difficult. This is true of other plugins, too. Because Flash is still widely used, removing it seems like a bad idea. Instead of disabling functions that can be useful, my preference is to use protective applications, keep the browser up to date, and be cautious. So far, that's worked for me. One of the first things you can do is use a secure name server. Your internet service provider's name server, it's called DNS or Domain Name Service, that's what translates names such as techbiter.com to an IP address such as 67.222.41.89. You can type either one of those into the browser's address line and get to the TechBiter website, but most people find it a lot easier to remember the name than the number. The first line of security involves using a DNS that can warn you about known rogue websites. OpenDNS does that. Set the name servers to 208.67.222.222 and 208.67.220.220. You do that in your router or in the computer's network settings if you don't have a router. Another good choice is Google's name services 8.8.8.8 .8 .8 .8 and 8.8.4.4. .4. 
My preference, though, is OpenDNS, and I've written about it before. You'll find a link to OpenDNS on this week's TechBiter Worldwide program. Next, you want to keep all software up to date and add some protection. The browsers themselves are becoming smarter, and this is another reason to make sure they're always up to date. Firefox can be set to update itself automatically. Internet Explorer and Edge will update automatically with Windows 10. And an application such as Ninite will keep other programs up to date, too. I found it to be very helpful. I wrote about it in an earlier program. There's a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week. The next barrier to malware is the antivirus applications on your computer. A vast internet security, for example, includes a site rating option that will block unsafe sites by default. Ironically, Firefox currently blocks this add-on because Mozilla hasn't yet validated it. The Avast plugin works in Chrome, though. Regardless of whether the protective application you have has such a feature, it almost certainly has a function that watches for suspicious activity. Most protective applications will coexist with two others that I recommend, Malwarebytes Anti-Malware and Malwarebytes Anti-Exploit. Just keeping the operating system, browsers, plugins, and protective applications up to date creates a reasonably safe environment. But there are also applications that block scripting. Several of these exist. Unfortunately, you won't find one that works with all browsers. For Firefox, NoScript is a good choice because it blocks just about everything by default unless you explicitly approve it. If you're using Chrome, take a look at ScriptSafe. When you arrive at a site the plugin hasn't seen before, everything will be blocked. You can then choose whether to allow the domain, trust it, deny it, or distrust it. If JavaScript is disabled on the TechBiter website, you won't see the site menu at the top of the screen, but after you clear the domain, the menu will appear again. Edge, which is Microsoft's Windows 10 browser, has an option in Advanced Settings to disable Flash, if you want to do that. And for Internet Explorer, in the Internet section, be sure that the security level you choose is at least set to medium-high and possibly all the way up at high. Choosing the high setting, though, may cause problems for some sites that you regularly visit. Although the Cyber Threat Alliance's recommendation to turn off plugins is valid, for me, security depends on the steps I've described and on using carefully selected security applications. And on being cautious. And then there's the recommendation to disable Java or uninstall it entirely. Ideally, I'd like to suggest that. Realistically, I can't. I detest Java. It's bloated, it's slow, it's insecure, but I can't get rid of it. That's because so many applications depend on Java. Point of order, Java and JavaScript are totally different applications. JavaScript is used in browsers and elsewhere. It was created by Netscape and was originally known as LiveScript. Java is an object-oriented programming language created by James Gosling of Sun Microsystems. As a clever person explained it, Java and JavaScript are similar in the same way that car and carpet are similar. Java has a very long history of security vulnerabilities. Several years ago, Mac users, many of whom mistakenly seem to believe that their computers are impervious to malware, found that Java made it easy for crooks to attack their computers. The website Tom's Hardware put it this way, Java is a favorite target of cyber criminals because it is so easy to exploit. 
and also because users are frequently using outdated versions of it. So the key point here is that outdated versions are vulnerable. Oracle, which acquired Sun Microsystems and therefore now owns Java, seems to be a bit more responsive these days and regularly releases security update. So if Java is installed on your computer, make sure it's always up to date. Java probably is on your computer. Uninstalling it would probably create problems for you. So just keep it up to date. Whenever you're prompted to update it, install the patch, period. No questions. Do it now. Some people suggest disabling Java on all browsers but one, and then using that one browser for sites that require Java. That may be a good practice, but it just seems impractical to me. In short circuits, sometimes you need more than just the elevated administrator privileges. In those cases, you need to be the administrator. The administrator account, with an uppercase A, has extra capabilities beyond what a standard administrator account has. Standard administrator accounts have a lowercase a. So in this report, because you can't see capital A's and small a's in a podcast, I will refer to administrator accounts, the standard accounts, and the administrator account. Recently, I needed to delete the Windows temp directory, but its settings had somehow become a bit muddled. I couldn't view the directory or delete it using my regular account, which does have administrator privileges, nor could I change permissions on the directory. Before explaining how I got rid of the problem, let's review the three types of accounts that Windows offers. There are standard accounts. The standard account protects the computer by preventing users from making changes to the system that affects any account but theirs. Standard users can run commands with enhanced privileges, but only if they know the password of an administrator. My account is set up as an administrator account. By default, it runs with standard permissions, but an administrator account has complete access to the computer, and it can make any desired changes. Attempting to run a command that requires elevated privileges will display a user access control message, but because the user is an administrator, the UAC can be dismissed by simply clicking OK. When you need a bit of extra power, you need to be the administrator. The administrator account is not enabled by default. It is a local account only. That is, it can't be linked to an online Microsoft account. The administrator account has full and unrestricted privileges and will not see a user access control prompt. Some applications, however, cannot be run in the administrator account. So I logged in as the administrator, deleted the temp directory, logged out, and restarted the computer. Windows recreated the temp directory on startup, of course, but then the access controls were correct, and so any user could gain access to it. There are several ways to enable the administrator account. The easiest one involves using the command prompt. Just start the command prompt with elevated privileges by right-clicking the command prompt from the start menu or start screen and choosing run as administrator. Then type the command net user administrator, insert a password, forward slash active colon yes. And check that out on the TechBiter Worldwide website. You can actually just copy and paste from there. Replace password with the password you want to use. 
Once you've done that, you'll be able to switch to the administrator account while your normal account is open or log on directly to the administrator account when you start the computer. If you need more than one terabyte of online storage, Microsoft's OneDrive isn't what you need anymore. One terabyte is the new limit for those who have subscribed to Office 365. If you're using the free version of OneDrive, you'll be able to keep only 5 gigabytes of files online instead of 15 gigabytes. Microsoft will be happy to sell you additional space, though, at $24 per year per 50 gigabytes. Now, considering that a 4-terabyte hard drive costs no more than about $150 these days, $24 a year for just 50 gigabytes seems a little overpriced. But what can you do? Or do you really need to do anything? Google Drive gives users 15 gigabytes of storage for free. Box offers 10 gig for free. The cheapskate of the group, Dropbox, offers only 2 gigabytes for free. Microsoft charges $10 a month for Office 365, and one terabyte will hold a lot of Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and Access files. The space reduction for free users is clearly an effort to push them toward Office 365. If you need unlimited storage, there's Amazon. For $60 a year, you can store as much as you need. Amazon doesn't yet offer synchronization or integration with desktop computers. That makes the service a non-starter for a lot of people. Still, it's inexpensive and unlimited. Google Drive wants $120 per year for a terabyte of storage. Oh, that's the same price as Office 365, and you don't have the advantage of access to Microsoft's Office Suite. Yeah, so maybe one terabyte isn't so bad after all. And, by the way, in spare parts, only on the website, see Microsoft's plans for a new data center in the UK, and a story about Fujitsu examining the future of computing over the next five to ten years. This is an interesting story. Check that one out. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week. Oh,